Chapter 16 of Raiding with Morgan by Byron Dunn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Calhoun makes his report. By keeping off the main roads and avoiding the towns, Calhoun had no trouble in making his way back into Tennessee. He had been gone nearly a month and was glad to see his old command, who gave him a royal welcome. He was showered with questions as to where he had been, but to each and every one he would laugh and say, "'Be glad to tell you, boys, but can't.' "'Thought you had deserted us,' said his scouts. "'Not till death,' replied Calhoun. "'I was on a secret mission. The general knows where I was.' "'It's all right, then, but mark my word. There will be some deviltry going on shortly,' one of them remarked sagely. As General Brackenridge was greatly interested, Calhoun did not make his report until that general could meet with Morgan. Then Calhoun gave a detailed account of all he had seen and heard. He was listened to with breathless attention. "'His report agrees perfectly with all I have heard,' remarked Breckenridge, much pleased. "'I have had a dozen different agents in the North, and they all agree.' "'But you have not given us your own conclusions, Lieutenant,' said Morgan. "'It might seem presumptuous in me,' answered Calhoun." "'By no means. Let us hear it,' replied both generals. Calhoun, thus entreated, gave the conclusions he had formed, not from what he had been told by the leaders of the Knights of the Golden Circle, but from his own observations. He was listened to with evident interest. "'Your conclusions seem to be at utter variance with all that was told you, on every fact given,' said Brackenridge. "'You admit that dissatisfaction,' in the Democratic Party is almost universal over the way the war is being conducted. You say that we have not been deceived regarding the numbers of the Knights of the Golden Circle, that there are 80,000 of the order in Indiana alone, of whom 40,000 are armed. As you know, every member of that order has taken an oath not to take up arms against the South, that they believe in states' rights that they will resist by force the tyranny of the federal government. And yet you say, it is your belief that if General Morgan should invade the state, not a hand would be raised to help him. I cannot understand it. I will try to make myself plain, said Calhoun. The Democratic Party is sick and tired of the war, and want it stopped. They believe we can never be whipped, and in that they are right. But they love the Union, revere the old flag. They indulged the vain hope that if the war were stopped, the Union might be restored. We know how foolish that hope is. I speak of the rank and file. Many of their leaders are notoriously disloyal, but they deceive the people with fine words. They make the party believe that if the Republican Party were only defeated, things would be as they were. As to the Knights of the Golden Circle, the great mass who joined it are told it is only a secret political society. They scarcely comprehend its oaths. They are kept in ignorance of the real motives of the order. These knights hate the party in power with a bitter hatred. They are friendly to the South, believe we are right, but, mark my word, they will not fight for us. They are armed, but their idea is to resist the draft. Go among them today, and not one in a thousand would enlist to fight in the Southern army. Fighting is the last thing they want to do for either side. 
For these reasons, I conclude that if General Morgan invaded Indiana, he would receive no direct aid from the Knights of the Golden Circle. I confess these conclusions are entirely different from what the leaders told me. As for the leaders, they are heart and soul with us. They want us to succeed. If they dared, they would rise in revolt tomorrow. They are doing all they can, without open resort to arms, to have us succeed. But they are a band of conspirators. They want us to succeed because they want utterly to destroy the Federal Union. They want to break loose and form a Northwest Confederacy. They dare not tell their followers this, but it is what they are working for. When Calhoun had stated his opinion, both Brackenridge and Morgan asked him many questions. He was then dismissed. Unknown to Calhoun, there were three or four other Southern officers present who had also been in the North. They were called in and questioned on the points raised by Calhoun. Everyone differed with him. They believed that if an opportunity were presented, the Knights would rise almost to a man at the call of their leaders. Brackenridge and Morgan held an earnest consultation. Morgan was greatly disappointed over Calhoun's report, for he had set his heart on making a raid into Indiana and Ohio. He believed it would be the greatest triumph of his life, and with the Northwest in open revolt, the independence of the South would be assured. "'Lieutenant Pennington must be mistaken,' said Brackenridge. "'My acquaintance in the North is extensive.' and I believe my friends there will do just as they say they will. Before Morgan and Brackenridge parted, it was fully agreed that Morgan should make the raid. But when the subject was broached to Bragg, that general absolutely refused to sanction it. He gave Morgan permission to make a raid into Kentucky and capture Louisville if possible. That was as far as he would go, and even with that object in view, he limited Morgan's force to 2,000. Morgan apparently acquiesced in this decision of his commander, but in his heart he resolved to disobey if, when he neared Louisville, he found conditions at all favorable for the invasion of Indiana. Some time had passed since Morgan had made a raid, and the news that they were again to ride north, probably clear to Louisville, was welcomed by the Rough Riders. To them, a raid was but a holiday. It did not take Morgan long to prepare. His men were always ready to move. To Louisville was the cry. We want to call on George D., meaning George D. Prentice, the editor of the Louisville Journal. In all probability, few men in the Confederate Army knew that Morgan was on another raid until he was well on his way. This time he entered Kentucky farther east than was his custom and the first intimation the Federals had that he was in the state, he was crossing the Cumberland River at Burksville. This was on the second day of July. The alarm was given. The frenzied Federals telegraphed right and left for troops to head off Morgan. It was thought that he intended to strike the Louisville and Nashville Railroad again at his favorite place, Bacon Creek. General Judah hurried from Tompkinsville, with a brigade to head him off, but his advance under General Hobson was struck at Marrowbone and hurled back. This left Morgan an open road to Columbia, and that place fell an easy prey on the third. Leaving General Hobson to pursue Morgan, General Judah hurried back to Glasgow, 
to bring up another brigade. But General Judah never overtook Morgan until days afterwards, and then he caught him at Buffington Island. As for Hobson, he stuck to Morgan's trail as an Indian sticks to the trail of his enemy. He followed him all through Kentucky, all through Indiana, all through Ohio, never but a few hours behind, yet never in striking distance, until Buffington Island was reached. After leaving the forces of Judah and Hobson in the rear, Morgan had nearly an open road to Louisville. The fourth found him at the crossing of Green River on the road between Columbia and Campbellsville. Here, a portion of the 25th Michigan under Colonel Moore was strongly fortified, and a charge made by Morgan was bloodily repulsed. As both Judah and Hobson were close in his rear, it would take too much time to bring these determined men to terms. And so Morgan, much to his regret, was forced to leave them and pass on. The 5th of July found him at Lebanon. The garrison under Colonel Hansen fought desperately, but was forced to capitulate, and Lebanon, with all its stores and 350 prisoners, was again in Morgan's hands. The next day found him at Bardstown, where twenty-five men of the 4th Regular Cavalry, under the command of Lieutenant Thomas Sullivan, threw themselves into a livery stable, strongly fortified it, and refused to surrender. Here Morgan made a mistake. He should have left them and passed on, but angered that he should be defied by so few men, he determined to capture them, and it delayed him twenty-four precious hours. So enraged were his men over what they considered the obstinacy of the brave little band that they began to misuse the prisoners. But Morgan stopped them, saying, The damned Yankees ought to be complimented on their pluck. Never in any of his raids had Morgan met with so fierce resistance as on this one. Cut to the quick by the numerous criticisms which had been published in northern papers, that cowardice prompted nearly every one of the surrenders to Morgan, these troops fought long after prudence should have caused them to surrender. From Bardstown, Morgan moved to Shepherdsville. He was now within striking distance of Louisville. Here it was that he fully decided, if he had not done so before, upon the invasion of Indiana, instead of attempting the capture of Louisville. At Shepherdsville, he was on the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, where a long bridge spans the Salt River. But he did not stop to capture the garrison which guarded the bridge, nor did he attempt to burn it. Time was too precious. Instead, he rode straight west, and on the ninth was in Brandenburg. Before him rolled the Ohio River. Beyond lay the green hills of Indiana. It was the first time he had led his men clear to the Ohio River. The sight of Yankee land aroused them to the utmost enthusiasm. They would have attempted to cross if ten thousand foes had opposed them. Calhoun had had the advance into Brandenburg, with instructions to sweep through the place, stopping for nothing, and to capture any steamboats which might be at the landing. This he did. Far in advance of the main body, he galloped into the town, to the astonishment and dismay of its citizens. Two small steamboats were lying at the landing, and before the terrorized crews could cut the hawsers and drift out into the stream, Calhoun and his men were on board, 
and the boats were theirs. The means of crossing the river were now in Morgan's hands, but a fresh danger arose. A gunboat came steaming down the river from Louisville and opened fire. Morgan brought every piece of his artillery into action, and for two hours the battle raged. Then the gunboat, discomfited, withdrew and went back to Louisville, leaving the way open. There was now nothing to prevent Morgan from crossing the river. End of chapter 16